If you're looking for a home mortgage, look no further than Premise Mortgage. The Premise process is simpler, faster, and more convenient than the competition because they're cutting-edge technology. Plus, Premise is an independent company, yet is backed by a bank. Therefore, they can offer all kinds of products for clients with various needs and deliver an awesome customer experience. Premise Mortgage is licensed in 43 states and counting. Contact Richie Love today at 704-607-1497. That's 704-607-1497. Matt Doherty, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. There's it away to Darty. Darty going in against Floyd. Floyd up is good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty. He is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. In this episode of the Rebound Podcast, we were in front of a live audience at Community Matters Cafe in Charlotte, North Carolina. My guest today is Jay Billis, ESPN analyst, nine-time Emmy nominee, three-time best analyst in college basketball, and the 2016 Kurt Gowdy Award winner. Jay was part of the recruiting class that saved Coach K's career at Duke. Coach K said, Jay and his class of 1986 collectively changed the course of Duke basketball and my career. Jay was a four-year starter with Mark Allery and Johnny Dawkins. He scored over 1,000 points and almost secured 700 rebounds. Ended up in the 1986 National Championship game in Dallas versus Louisville. Jay played in Europe before attending law school at Duke. He thought he was going to be a coach, but was rerouted into the legal field and then ultimately TV, where he is one of the best in the business. Stick around for some fun exchanges with Jay and me in front of a live audience at Community Matters Cafe near Uptown Charlotte. You will learn about the impact Jay's dad had on his life in addition to hearing how Jay was a childhood prodigy in the world of, wait for it, Ballroom dancing. Okay, so let's get to the the real the big reason that we're here. I want to introduce to you first this guy over here to my right, Matt Doherty, is a nationally recognized motivational speaker, best-selling author, media personality, and executive coach. In 2022, he was named the Vistage Rookie of the Year and won the Chair Excellence Award. He guides companies on how to develop leadership skills and team dynamics. Coach Doherty was a starter on the 1982 National Championship team with a guy named Michael Jordan at UNC, along with being the head coach at Notre Dame and also North Carolina. He was named the 2001 Associated Press National Coach of the Year at North Carolina, Matt Doherty. And to my left, a four-time Emmy nominee, a, a nine-time Emmy nominee. He has three times been named the best analyst in college basketball by Sports Illustrated, as well as the ACC Sports Journal and Barrett Sports Media, among other publications. In 2016, Jay Billis was the recipient of the prestigious Kurt Gowdy Award. 
from the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. The New York Times bestselling author of Toughness, Developing True Strength on and off the court. He also writes for ESPN.com and was awarded the best column of the year in 2007 by the United States Basketball Writers Association. A prep All-American from Los Angeles, California, the 6'7 Jay Billis was a four-year starter at Duke under Mike Krzyzewski from 1982 to 1986. As an undersized center, he scored 1,062 points, grabbed 692 rebounds, helped lead Duke to the number one ranking, the 1986 ACC Championship, and the 1986 National Championship game, which I mentioned. Jay Billis' 1986 Duke team set the NCAA record for the most wins in a single season with 37. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Billis and Matt Doherty. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, man, that's uh, good stuff. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, really excited uh, to have such a great crowd at Community Matters Cafe. And Jay, thank you for being a part of this uh, um, Rebound podcast. Um, I really like to start growing up. Um, what was it like growing up in Southern California, mom, dad, family, playing sports? Take us back to that time. In a lot of ways, Matt, it was idyllic. You know, I grew up in a beautiful area of Southern California in Rolling Hills, uh, not far from the Pacific Ocean. Um, my parents had grown up not far from there in San Pedro, California, where the Port of Los Angeles is. And my dad was uh, really hardworking. He, he had been a commercial fisherman before I was born. And then he got into uh, television sales and service. He was essentially a TV repairman, owned his own business. And so he was a, you know, his work ethic kind of was a big impact on me. Uh, neither one of my parents had the opportunity to go to college. So when I was growing up, uh, it was always sort of pounded into me that, you know, you need to go to college. And uh, my mom used to say, college of your choice. You know, you need to be a good enough student where you go to college of your choice. And then I got good at basketball and started getting recruited and realized I didn't need to be as good of a student as my mom <laughs> thought I needed to be. And that was sort of a point of friction. And uh, she wanted me to go to Stanford and uh, I didn't want to do that. And I, oddly well, why, enough- Why didn't you want to go to Stanford? At that time, Stanford was not uh, considered to be a great basketball program. And it was not, you know, sports were not the Stanford thing. And so I didn't, I didn't really take to it. And, uh, and, but we had a, my mother and I, uh, the biggest issue that we had with my academics was, uh, I was a good student, but it wasn't my number one priority. And I had uh, my junior year, uh, had to take the SAT, SAT and my mom had very high expectations for my score. And I had gone out the night before with my friends. It was a little foggy the next day. And I thought, I thought I had done really well. And when we got the result back, my mom was like, this is not going to get into an Ivy League school. And I'm like, yeah, it will, mom. Like, yeah, because and, I can play ball. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I made her deal. I said, we'll let in some Ivy League schools for home visits and we'll put the score in front of them. They say it's good enough. Then I don't have to take it again. And she's like, she was convinced that it wouldn't be good enough. And so I think you were, I was, you were you were working on your law degree yes. and your law practice at a very early age. I just didn't want to take it again. <laughs> no kidding. And uh, so she, we let in. I think it was Harvard and Brown, and both of them said, "Oh yeah, that's fine." Yeah. And she was livid. Like there, there was steam coming out of her ears, and I was looking at her, going, "Like guess what? I'm not taking again." <laughs> so tell us about like I love this stuff. 
I read your book, Toughness, loved reading it, and I, and I love so much about it, but especially the impact your parents made. Your mother put you in some uncomfortable positions. Yeah. Talk my, about that. My mother was um, deathly afraid that I would become an uncultured Neanderthal athlete. So I was, uh, I call it, she encouraged me to be in the light most favorable to my mother. She forced me. I had to take ballroom dancing. And when I started doing it, God, by the way, I'll never use that against you down the road. I'll, I'll it, never bring that up like uh, over a big putt on 18. It's I'll out never there now. It's, <laughs> it's out there now. So it's all over. But I, I showed some proficiency in it. And the, the teacher that I had was a, an older lady, but she had been a world class ballroom dancer. So she paired me with an older girl and we went around to competitions in Southern California and we won. And so I got, I had, I had like probably six or seven ballroom dancing trophies that never saw the light of day. Like I kept them in some closet. Like I was not telling anybody. What about your boys? I mean, you I got, didn't tell any of my friends. No. So I, that was a profound secret that I didn't tell anybody. And then not that there's anything wrong with that. But then we Melissa. got, to, oh, we got, so, you know, you get, you get uh, into like, I think I was in eighth or ninth grade and at school they had this cotillion program. And so every boy and girl had to go through cotillion and, you know, we had to act, I had to act like I didn't want any part of it. So they were teaching us how to do ballroom dancing and I was killing it. <laughs> and my, my friends were like, how do you know all this stuff? And I was going, I'm an athlete. How do you not, how can you not do this? Like, what are you kidding me? And just pretended like I didn't know what they were talking about and then executed everything. Trent, go, go to your dad now. Your dad, you know, blue collar, basically, own, you know, TV repairman. And in your book, you talk about uh, the latter. Mm -hmm. You know, talk about that that story and so, the impact that it had on you. So my dad, um, you know, back then, TVs were furniture. You know, you had console TV sets. So he would go on calls and, and actually do house calls and then take the TV back uh, to the shop and fix it. And he made a lot of money doing that, did very well and decided that he was going to take the money that he made and invest in real estate. Uh, he didn't feel like he understood stock market, stuff like that, but he understood the area he grew up in. So he bought some storefront properties and things like that and tried to put them together. And, and after a, a time, you know, in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, his buildings were older. So he had to earthquake proof the buildings and had to bring them up to, to, to California code. And he had me work with him. So I worked on the, the roofing crews that had to do this stuff. And I was probably 17 years old. And, uh, so part of my job, I was the lowest guy on the totem pole. So I would have to carry material every morning. I'd have to carry all the materials up from the, the ground floor up to the roof. And I, you know, being a, an idiot, I thought, okay, I got to carry all this stuff up. I really don't want to do it. If I carry twice as much stuff, I take half the amount of trips. And so I overloaded myself on one of these trips and I got, every time I tell the story, I'm higher up on the ladder, but <laughs> I probably got halfway up the ladder and I fell. I just, I was, I couldn't keep my balance and I fell, I fell dead on my back. And initially my dad, you, you know, like something happens to your kid. Every parent feels this at first. You're like, he was scared that I was hurt. And then when he found out I wasn't hurt, then he was pissed. <laughs> and, and so he says to me, and I don't think he felt like he was being profound at the time, but he was, he looked at me and he said, he said, start concentrating on what you're doing. He said, you can't get to the top of that ladder in one step, but you can get to the bottom in one step. 
Like every step is, you know, basically every step on the ladder was important. I, I love that nugget. Yeah. And I started just kind of thinking about that. Like, you know, your destination may be the top, but what's more important than the rung you're on? Right. Doesn't matter the ones behind you or the ones ahead of you. It's the rung you're on that determines, you know, your fate here. And, and you know, I, I thought about that quite a bit afterwards. And then you, I, had, you, I still had to carry all that crap up the top yeah. afterwards. You seem to be getting a little emotional about when you, yeah, you hear that I mean, story. Is your, are your parents still alive? Yes. My dad's yeah. 90 and my mom's 87. My dad still plays golf and uh, he's in, he's in really good shape for 90. He can't hear anything, but, but other than that, he's doing great. Yeah. Maybe that's selective. I um, think it is selective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how does, how do those two lessons, your mom putting you in uncomfortable positions, you know, with dance and, and your dad with one step at a time on a ladder, how has, has have those lessons helped you with your career, not only at Duke, but as a broadcaster, as one of the best in the business? I think it came down to handling, you know, they, they sort of taught me, it, you can handle your own business. You don't have to worry about everything at one time. And my dad used to tell me, you know, when I was playing, I, I think I had a game one night and I, after the game, I, you know, I, he could tell that I wasn't fully into it. And he was like, and he never gave me advice on basketball. He stayed completely out of it. He wanted to hear the stories about what happened in the locker room and have a few laughs, but he never critiqued me. Uh, he was my dad, not my coach. So after a game, he noticed that maybe I wasn't all there. And he was like, what was going on? And I said, I got this test coming up and this is happening. And I, you know, I was, I, and he said, what could you do about it while you're playing? And he said, it's okay for you to think about only basketball while you're playing. You can't do anything about that other stuff. So what good does it do you to worry about it? And he said, when it's over, then you can think about the test. And then he goes, when you go out at night with your friends and you put aside a couple hours to hang out, hang out and don't think about anything else. But when it's over, you got to move on to the next thing. He was really good at that. That's com compartmentalization and yeah, just really sort of, stay present. Yeah, present. They call it that now. But he was basically like concentrate on what you're doing while you're doing it. When you're done, you move on to the next thing. Like he had tasks that he had to do every day. So the night before, and it wasn't like uh, uh, like he had some you know big notebook of things. He had a yellow pad. Right. And the night before, uh, he would go to work. He would he would sit down and he would say, what do I have to do tomorrow? And he would come up with whatever he was supposed to do. And, you know, he wasn't home that much. So when he was at home, you know, I'd be like, come on, dad, let's watch this or let's go play, play catch or do this. And he said, give me a few minutes. I got to do this. I'm like, and I, one time I said, why do you have to do that? And he says, well, because I got a, I got a plan for tomorrow. So I can't just wake up and decide what I'm going to do tomorrow. I got to plan it out today. And he wasn't like giving me some lesson. I was bothering him and he wanted me to go away. But, uh, and my mom was kind of the same way. Like she wanted me to, you know, the ballroom dance thing, but she also made me take public speaking courses, which I hated. Was that, uh, was that, uh, Mr. Spidell? No, that was my basketball coach, okay. but I had a guy named Billy Kramer. Who oh, Mr. Was Kramer. Mr. Yeah. Kramer. Forensics so, class. Yeah. So he, my mom put me in this stuff. And I started, uh, you know, started taking this speech and debate stuff. And then Mr. Kramer got a hold of me and he started taking me to, they called them forensics competitions. And he, he went from my junior high, just happened to get a job in my high school. So I had him for like seven or eight straight years. And, and so he would take me to these different competitions. And, 
you know, they called them. There was one that was extemporaneous speaking and, and uh, impromptu speaking where they would give you a topic and you had two minutes to come up with a speech. Another one, they would give it to you and you just had to start. And, you know, you're 16 years old standing in front of a room with only like four judges in the competition. And I don't think I've ever done anything that scared me that much. Mm-hmm. And whether I was in front of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals as a lawyer or playing basketball, whatever, speaking at an event, um, that was great preparation on, you know, do this. And if you if you fall on your face, you got to do it again. And, uh, and, you know, I'm sitting here worried about what these four people are thinking, and it's really not that big of a deal, but it was hard uh, when you were doing it, but, you know, having to deal with that and then overcome it, things later on didn't seem like they were as big of a deal after you went through that. Well, it's funny to, you know, you go into law, you go into broadcasting, you play basketball at a high level, all those lessons that your parents are forcing you to take, which you didn't like at the time, were really beneficial to you? Oh, hugely beneficial. And, you know, I I think my parents always encouraged me. They always let me do what I wanted to do. But my mom, especially, you know, there's my dad, you know, I had certain have tos at home. You know, I had had to cut the cut the ivy and all that stuff, do yard work, which now I will not lift a yard work finger after doing that. But, but Wendy's shaking yeah, her head, she, the oh, audience. She, yeah. I, she knows from the time we got married, I told her, no I, yard I, work. I promise you I'll make enough money where we'll have a yard service. I am yeah. never doing it. Yeah. Well, I have a green thumb. Uh, um, I'm in the yard all the time, pulling weeds and planting flowers and, uh, trimming hedges and stuff. Right. Kelly. Yeah. Better man than me. I'm no, I'm not. That. I'm not. I'm with you. But I, I, I think like having you do things that are I'm not sure you need to intentionally make people go outside of their comfort zone, but, you know, try it out. And, uh, and I I think my, my parents had a pretty, especially my mom had a pretty healthy fear of my failure. Um, but they put me in positions where I could fail so that, you know, you kind of got used to trying things. Yes. Talk, talk more, talk more about that because I think that is something that people are afraid of failure. And you talk in your book a lot. Coach K says, uh, failure is not a destination, I think was the quote. Yeah. He got that from, from the military academy. And, you know, I, I always, you know, you associated somebody saying failure, you failed at this as this horrifying thing. And there's a difference between failing and being a failure. Those, those are two different, completely different things. And you start thinking about, you know, our experiences playing that, you know, you go into a game and, you know, the, the goal is to win. Well, if you lose the game, well, you did fail, but you may have played really well and lost. I mean, so you have to be able to deal with the failure and, and then act on that positively. And I think I, I learned that not always. I mean, there were times when you didn't act on it positively because you're immature, but being put in those positions um, and you were put in it athletically, but I'm not sure that's what, honestly, Matt, why I wrote the book called toughness is because it was never really defined to us uh, by our coaches. You know, you kind of learned it over the years through us. Well, we always maybe. thought toughness was standing up physical contact yeah. confrontation in the park or in a game, you know, that's toughness. And a lot of that's fake toughness, yes. right? But you touched on toughness is, concentrating on a task, right? right? Toughness is dealing with failure. Um, what other, what other forms of toughness? Um, and, and how can people in the audience and the listening audience, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs, 
you know, how do you, how do they carry that to the workplace and build resilient teams? Especially, especially because this generation gets a bad rap, right? I think so. And, and you're working, you see these young people, you have a basketball camp, uh, you're working as an analyst for college basketball. So you see these generations after generations after generations. So, uh, talk about toughness, talk about, uh, this generation and talking about building resilient teams. You know, I, I think, to your point, I think this generation, you know, our kids get a, a bad rap that somehow they're uh, somehow softer than we used to be or they're, they scroll too much and all that when we do it just as much as they do. Um, I, I, my sense is, and I don't, I haven't talked to, you know, I didn't talk to my grandparents about this, but my sense is that my grandfather who served in the military probably thought I was the, the wimpiest guy that he'd ever met. You know, he, he fought in World War II or, you know, was in the merchant Marine, did all these things. And, you know, his generation ran up Omaha beach and, and I'm sure my dad felt like I had it a lot easier than he did. And I did. Um, but it doesn't mean that the things that I was doing weren't difficult and didn't require me to put myself out there and, and strive and work and achieve. And I think for our kids, like I looked at my kids when they were going through the college admissions process and I was like, look at the pressure that's on them. Yeah. And I didn't feel that kind of pressure. And it wasn't just because we, we played basketball and got recruited. It was, it was, you know, when I was in high school, my friends, the question we asked our, each other was, are you going to college? Nobody asked, where are you going? It wasn't like a status thing. And for our kids, if they didn't get into a certain level of, of school, they felt like they'd failed. And that's not the way it works. I actually, with my son, I had actually showed him, here's a list of CEOs, some of the highest paid CEOs, and here's where they went to school. Like, show me the pattern. There isn't one. Some of them went to small schools, big schools, highly regarded schools. Didn't go to regarded. school. Some didn't. And, uh, and, and, but to your point on, on resilient team, I, I, I went pretty deep in thinking about what accountability means. And when I was growing up and I would hear the word accountability, you know, your account, you gotta be accountable. Uh, to me, it was associated with blame and like blame is a toxic thing. Accountability is an essential thing. And so when, when you have clearly defined responsibilities and expectations, uh, and then when when you're accountable to those, you accept that this is what I'm expected to do and you accept that uh, and and you work together with your colleagues. That's a that's a healthy culture. Um, you know, when, when something happens that's negative, which happens in every team, every organization, you're going to have negative results at times. If it's a if it's a blame culture, then you're going to have a bunch of risk averse people. And I remember one time when I was playing, you know, Co you know, Coach K, like, especially back then, he could be pretty sharp with you. And, uh, you know, you go through film session, if you made a mistake, you know, I needed therapy after some of the film sessions. <laughs> and I had a, a, there was an assistant coach on our team named Bob Bender. And I had been, I had been getting it pretty good from Coach K at practice one day. And toward the end of practice, Bob comes up to me and Bob coached at Illinois State and University of Washington, coached in the NBA for a long time. And he came up to me, he says, stop hiding. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you're playing not to make a mistake so he doesn't jump you. And he said, quit doing that. Like, go for it. And I, and he was right. Like I was, I was trying not to make a mistake and you don't want that. You know, you don't want people to be reckless, 
but you know, you can't have a you can't be a risk averse person all the time because you don't want to be held like I'm not going to do that. It's kind of like a line in a movie where somebody said, uh, "Wait a minute, I didn't make that decision. I approved that decision. There are two different things." You know, you, you don't want that. So, so building, you know, obviously Coach K is is uh, it, is one of the best of all time, and and not only as a basketball coach, but I think a leader of men. And uh, you've seen up close and personal in your profession, coaches after coaches after coaches. You decided to go to Duke when Coach K had a 23 and 30 record in his first two years. Why? I had a really difficult experience with my high school coach. Um, the high school team that I played on was really good. We had a number of guys that went on and played division one basketball and we'd all grown up together. So we played together from fourth grade all the way through high school. So we had a very close knit group of, of guys, but our coach just wasn't very good. And he was a nice person, uh, off the floor, but we were miserable and, and he made us all miserable. And at the end of it, in what way, how? Like per, um, was it personal, per, verbal, it or was, was it just lack apathy? All of it. All of it. It, was, it wasn't apathy, but it was all of it. He was underqualified, which you can deal with. That's fine. Um, but he was manipulative. Uh, he, he wanted a team where everybody scored nine points a game, and he wanted no separation between the players. That's not the way it goes. And we'd have games where if I had 25 points in the first half and we were up 15, I didn't play in the second half. And we were like, really? Right. You know, Really? And, and even to the point, uh, I played with a great player named Dave Butler who played at, at Cal and played professionally uh, overseas like I did. And our junior year, we were one of the top teams in, in Southern California, and he didn't nominate any of us for all state. And you had to be nominated by your coach. And you're like, what? Like, you didn't nominate us? Like, if we don't get voted for, that's fine. But, you know, you're supposed to be supported by your coach. And he but, just didn't want accolades for the, t- for the individuals. What goes through my mind is I'm thinking about your dad and your mom. Now today, if that coach doesn't support the player, the kids either transferring or the parents are gonna get them fired, what did your parents do in that situation? My dad was was basically, look, you, you're gonna be somewhere after this. Just manage it and deal with it. And uh, um, stay away from the things that set him off and handle it. Mm. And, and I did. Um, but I didn't want, I didn't want that to happen again. So when I was deciding where to go to college, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure people don't like hearing this, but I really didn't care where I went to school. I cared who I played for because that was more important to me. You know, I was one of those probably arrogant high school kids that I thought all these schools have same books in the library. I'll be fine. Um, but I wanted like my basketball was important to me. So I wanted to be happy in my basketball life. And if I was happy there and the, if I find the right person, he'll be at the right school. And so I came down to four coaches. I came down to uh, coach K at Duke, who was the least accomplished of any of the, the four Lou Olson at Iowa, um, uh, Jim Bayheim at Syracuse and then Ted Owens at Kansas. Oh, wow. And, wow. uh, and uh, it, at the end of the, did you end, visit Syracuse? I did. Did you? And what October, was that like from rolling Hills, California? It was brutal. <laughs> um, it was brutal. And that, that made a big difference. Uh, <laughs> but when it came, when it came to the end of the recruiting process, you know, you'd kind of flirted with everybody and it, you know, it's kind of like, I'm sure it was the same for you. You come home from a visit and you're like, well, I'm going there. Mm-hmm. And then time went on and you got a little more rational about it. But uh, when it came down to it, I was basically, I like Coach K the best. 
and and I want to play for him. And and it worked out that that it worked you know, out indeed. Yeah, it worked out really I well. I mean, four me. year starter with Mark Gallery, Johnny Dawkins, and Coach K said Jay and his class of nineteen eighty six collectively changed the course of Duke basketball in my career. <laughs> like like to, his I was I was at North Carolina his first year. A couple of years later, I want to say his second year, maybe you weren't there yet, or his third year, they lose to Wagner at home. Yeah, that was my freshman year. Your freshman year. Mm -hmm. Lose to Wagner at home, and he gets called into the AD's office, Tom Butters, and he thinks he's going to get fired, and he gets a 10-year extension. That was the next year. Um, My freshman year, we thought he was going to get fired. So it was a... uh, what I would consider a toxic atmosphere around the program. And uh, so I, we were worried. And I remember calling home and I call my dad and I go, man, what if they fire him? Like, I'm not staying here. If they fire him, my dad and my dad would say, will you shut up? <laughs> like, he's, he, But how about that for a dad? Now, how, I'm going to, Anthony calls home and complains when he's at Wake Forest, your son. And now I know he's graduated from Wake Forest, but how, how, how did you parent? How did you parent like your dad? How, how did you parent when those types of situations? I, I listened first and made sure I listened to the whole story. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm sure Anthony wouldn't mind. My son's name is Anthony, like my father. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you this. So I, I can't remember this junior year. He called home and my son was a walk-on and he wound up being captain of the team at four great years. They were playing for Danny Manning at Wake Forest but he had they had had a they had had a game and uh, and Danny and the, the staff didn't feel like the bench was as into the game as they needed to be. So decided that he was going to leave a couple guys home on the next road trip. And Aunt, my son was one of the one of the guys. Wow. And he basically he didn't leave any of the starters home. He left the, <laughs> the walk ons home. So uh, he, he Anthony said, you know, this is not right. And. Uh, and I want to, I want to say something. And so I listened to him. I said, what, what would you say? And, and I, I told him, I said, look, you can do that. If you feel like it, if you feel compelled to do it, you can do that. Here's the way I would handle it. You're not going to move that your coach with this story. Um, I, I hate to break this to you, but the coaches aren't staying up at night thinking, do the walk-ons feel fulfilled? They're just not. <laughs> and if, if you go in and do that, you're going to make too big a deal out of this take it like, and no disrespect, but I, the game was Clemson. I said, you're getting out of a trip to Clemson. Like, <clears throat> Mark, that could, that could be worse. Like, uh, <laughs> it's not like you're going down to Miami, staying in South beach, right. relax. But, but I handled that. And I, they have a nice holiday in, in Anderson <laughs> and a great sushi restaurant. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, Mark McLean played at Clemson. Uh, we all have our crosses to play. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, a- Anthony, so we'll talk about the what, well, what happened. He decided not to yeah. not to do it, and and it was a it went away. It yeah. wasn't that big. It wasn't that big of a deal. The coaching staff. Why make a big bigger deal out of it? But my dad, when I when I called home about Coach K, maybe what if they fire him? He's like, tell me what you can do about that. And his thing his thing was, your job is to play play and whatever happens you'll deal with it later you can't do anything about it now so just play i love it and then your senior year uh 37 wins final four national championship game uh then you went to law school 
for three years and you were an assistant coach. And Duke went to three Final Fours and won back-to-back national championships. So you went from player to on his staff. Well, I played three years overseas first. So, I, I, you know, like like both of us, you know, you wanted to play professionally. And after three years over there, um, I thought I would play, you know, it turned out that playing in Italy was my level. You know, I I mean, I'm sure if I made a team in the NBA, I got drafted by the Mavericks, you know, but I would have been at the end of the bench wondering if I was going on the next road trip. (laughs) And and so, you know, I, I, it was really enjoyable for me, Matt. Like, you know, you go... uh, and we had somewhat similar, you were a much better player than I was, but we had somewhat similar uh, experiences in that, you know, you, you leave high school, you're a star celebrated player in high school. Then you go to college and you're, you're a, a good role player, like a valuable asset, but you know, yeah. you, it's not like, yeah, you're a role player. Yeah. You, Coach, Smith, uh, Coach Smith one time, uh, you know, high school, all American, um, go to North Carolina, scored a lot of points in high school. <laughs> And I tell this story, he comes up, there's Jed Doughton and Richard Venroot, and he, you know, both played at North Carolina. And uh, Coach Smith before practice says, uh, eh, you know, Matthew, um, I think you could be the best screener in the country. <laughs> for real, for real. And I'm like, okay, coach, you know, a friend, a friend of mine talks about good leadership is manipulation with good intent. So at an early age, I got a sense of the media. All right, Coach, I get it. All right. But, you know, I got Sam Perkins. I got, uh, you know, All-American, James Worthy, All-American, Michael Jordan. That's pretty good coaching as opposed to saying, listen, man, you're getting no shots. Set some damn screens. Right. So he said it in a very nice way. And I joke and I said, you know, I'd go out to a fraternity party on a Friday night, go up to a good looking girl and say, you know, I'm the best screener in the country. <laughs> Got no play. They walk right by me, went to Michael Jordan, James Worthy. But, but I wouldn't do it any differently. And I don't think you would either. No, no. Right. You no. could have been a star maybe at another, you know, Stanford. And I could have been a bigger name player in another place. But we did special things with special guys, with special coaches at special institutions. That's sort of the choice. But, you know, so you, you leave high school, you do the role player thing. And and it was it was really fulfilling. I enjoyed it. I didn't I didn't consider being called a role player an insult. Right. You know, just because you're asked to play that role doesn't mean it's all you're capable of. But after getting out of college and going overseas, you know, like I was a star player again and it was fun. Like I enjoyed like being the the center of like, I'm taking all the shots and it was really fun. <laughs> but after three years of it, coach K called me and said, uh, you know, I had applied to law school because my dad said, if you don't, if you don't get accepted to law school now, you're not going to do it when you're 32 or 33, like do it now and defer it. Your and, dad was a good man. Yeah. He's smart. And so I, I did it. I took the, I took the law school admission test when I was in, you know, I, I had to fly to Spain to do it. And I took it in Air Force Base and did well enough where I could get into law school. I applied to Duke and I was thinking, okay, maybe I won't get in. And if I do get in, I can defer it and play six, seven, eight more years in, in Europe and make some more money and all that. And uh, Coach K calls me, he, you know, he heard about the application. So he calls me and says, um, he offered me a coaching job as a grad assistant. And he was the one that said, uh, you know, if you get into law school, will you go? And I said, well, I want to keep playing. Um, and he, he want to, you know, continue my professional career. And he said, no, I get that. And he says, I just don't know that this offer is going to come around again. I was like, oh, geez. 
And I Manip- thought manipulation with yeah, good intent. Yeah. Right. And I thought maybe I should take this. They were more similar, Coach Smith and Coach K, than different. Yes. They're just the packaging was a little, a little different. Just different personalities, yeah. but the same. They had the same like core principles. That's I right. Think. And uh, and so I took it and did law school and and um, and basketball at the same time. And I really thought coaching was was the path I was going to take. But it didn't turn out that that would be when my wife, Wendy, and I, we got engaged and we didn't think that would be the best sort of family path for us. Oh, no, it's a great family path. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Kelly? Yeah, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Good decision, Wendy. She didn't want to move. She didn't want to move as much as I was willing to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's a smart girl. She was right. Yeah. Um, So you're on the staff. Three Final Fours, two national championships. Mm-hmm. What was it like? Like, I, I, when I went to work for Roy Williams at Kansas, I got now behind the curtain of, the, of Coach Smith's program. I, you know, uh, you, you, he, you see it and feel it one way as a player when you're 18 to 21, 22. And then you're older, more mature, more experienced. And now you get to be in the meetings. You get to see him before games, after games, planning practice, watching film. What what popped out to you like, oh, that's the method to his madness or that's why he did things or, oh, wow, this is really unique, really smart. I didn't realize that as a player. Any anything jump out during the course of your time being an assistant coach? A lot. Um, I, I think the first thing that jumped out was the level of detail and uh, and the depth of scouting that that Coach K and the staff uh, did. And then the difference between what the staff was prepared for and what they shared with the players and coach K, one of his, what I believe one of his greatest strengths is, is taking the complicated and making it simple. And so we would boil down a game plan. All right, here are the four things we need to do. You know, we don't need to stop every action that they have. And we don't need to get bogged down in those those details. If we take away this pass, this entry pass, and, and push it out two feet, or if we can deny this reversal on this action, we can blow this whole thing up. You know, stuff like that, this whole particular play. But he would give us three or four things on offense and defense that we needed to concentrate on. The rest of it was going to be based on our principles. And it was it was made it easy and digestible for us that we could act on it, that we weren't overburdened with too much information. He had it, but we didn't need that level of, of having everything. And then the other part were the interpersonal connections on the team that he was always uh, cognizant of is the, is this player's going through this, this, there's, there's something going on between these two guys. We need to address that. And he was really good at jumping on something um, that was seemingly small while we were winning, that if he didn't jump on it now, it was become going to become a bigger issue and cost us later. Can you give me an example? Give, give us an example of that. He was a big body language guy. Oh, yeah. And 50% of communications, body language. Really <laughs> big. And, and I say of, that all the time. But you're right. And he, but, but sort of the body language that a player would exhibit that would send messages to his teammates and then to the opponent. And when Bobby Hurley was a younger player, my first year as an assistant was his first year. And when I had heard so much about Bobby, I wasn't part of his recruiting process, 
But, you know, I had heard, man, this guy is going to change everything here. And the first couple of weeks of practice, I was like, man, the old man snapped his cap. Like this guy's a whiny little. <laughs> the old man snapped his cow. what? His cap. His cap. Um, you know, at first I didn't really care for Bobby. Right. No, I listened. Nobody did. I mean, yeah. He had a sourpuss, especially if you're a Carolina guy. You hated the guy. He, uh, that's a recruiting story. He wanted to go to Carolina. Um, no. We uh, all but, did. But, but you, you've heard it. And Coach waited on Kenny Anderson and Mr. Hurley and, you know, didn't want to wait. And anyway. But that's a, so. But he had, he was a very, had a, always very fiery. Yeah. Always looked unhappy, would yeah. react uh, to, to everything. And Coach K sat him down and showed him his body language, says, you can't do this. That, you know, how, how do you think your teammates are reacting to now they're worried about you and, and, you know, the opponents are going, okay, we got him now, you know, you're not projecting strength and all that. And he, he didn't wait until it, because Bobby was unbelievably good. I mean, you had to have him out there and, uh, and, but he, he would jump on those little things, little, little details he would make a big deal out of, and he would rock the boat when it, when we were winning. He wasn't afraid to do that. And a lot of coaches don't want to rock the boat. But if you don't jump on it, then later on, that's a reason you may lose. And then the boat gets rocked for you. Yeah. Jeff Van Gundy has a great quote. Uh, don't accept in victory what you wouldn't accept in defeat. Right. And that's basically what you're saying. Right. And so everybody here, you know, has uh, goes on a hot streak. Right. Right. Uh, through the pandemic, a lot of people had great success during the pandemic because there was extra money and, and all of a sudden they get the, the wind at their backs and then things start to tighten up. And maybe during that period, you allowed people to loaf. You allowed people to show up late. You allowed maybe the, the, the d detail in the reports weren't as sharp. Um, but that's when you tighten the screws. That's when the great teams tighten the screws. Well, and, the, and, and you know this better than anybody, like the margin of victory is so slim in these games. So you have, you have the same performance in two different games, exactly the same. You win one because the last shot goes in. And magically, the last shot going in washes away the mistakes. You lose that game, the shot doesn't go in, and then every mistake is magnified. And the truth lies in the middle. So can you can you address those mistakes when you're winning rather than over, you know, kind of overdo it when you're losing, mm -hmm. you know, sort of magnify it too much. And, you know, Kevin Eastman, who's been a mentor of mine for a long time. And, you know, Kevin had a had a saying he was like, catch him doing something right. You know, that, that coaches would uh, oftentimes they're, they're very good at, at being critical of mistakes. Coach Smith would say, praise the actions you want repeated. Exactly. Praise the action you want to re repeat it. But but catch him doing something right. And, you know, we didn't do everything wrong, but I think going back to, you know, resiliency, part of it is, is resiliency and accountability. For me, part of it is being tough enough to accept uh, critique and being able to act on it positively. So when you get, when you get feedback um, and how it's delivered is important, uh, you know, sort of the blame versus accountability thing. But are you willing to, to accept that and then say, OK, I made a mistake here. I didn't do my best here and then use that to act positively on it. Or is it going to be something where you feel attacked or you're going to Well, gonna when you're a player, you and I have shared stories on the golf course like, you know, 
I don't think Coach K or Coach Smith at times really cared what we thought when they were critiquing us no. on the course court, right? No. Yeah. Like Coach Smith sometimes just said, Darty Exum changed God but rest his soul. Cecil Exum had just passed away. But the worst thing he was he never cursed, but he would say to me, Darty Exum changed jerseys, which is basically I was demoted to the second team. I know Coach K's, you know, was maybe a little more aggressive with his comments. How should the people in here and the listening audience that are running companies hold people accountable, address it, deliver that news? Because I think that's the hardest thing. Talk about driving a culture. You got to you got to um, uh, have core values. You got to set a list of the behaviors that that are important to the program. And then you got to hold them accountable. Well, the first two are easy. We can we can have fun with core values and behaviors. But now all of a sudden, Allery and Dawkins don't show up on time for the bus. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that story. Yeah, that, that was my freshman year on the way to uh, the ACC tournament. Um, we were uh, freshmen. Uh, we, we each had a, a fellow teammate as a roommate, and we were expected the bus leaves at whatever time, 9 in the morning or 8.30. And, uh, and Allery and Dawkins are roommates in the dorm, and they, they're not on the bus so Coach K said, the bus leaves at X time. We're leaving. You're either on the bus or you're not. So, you know, it, made it makes it sound like we just went to the airport and flew to Atlanta. But uh, he had one of the assistants get off the bus and go get him. But they had their alarms didn't go off and they just overslept. So when they finally got there, um, he sat the team down when we got to Atlanta and, and we went over the fact that these guys were late. So he, he, like, how do you blame two guys, especially your two best players? Their alarm didn't go off. I mean, that's going to happen. So he looked at the rest of the freshmen that were in their dorm. We were all on the same floor in the dorm. And he said, what did you guys do? Did you guys knock on, make sure that all of you were going to get there? Like, what responsibility do you take for all of you, all of us being on time? And he, he asked us the question and we started saying, well, geez, we could have done that. We walked right past the closed door at their room. None of us thought uh, maybe we should knock on their door. We were all into ourselves. Like we, I got to get there on time. And uh, so he's, he's basically asking us like, you need to take responsibility for each other and put it on all of us for them being late. And that way you can still start them. Maybe that was part of it. He didn't have to take them out of the lineup. <laughs> it's but, funny. Yeah. If, if, if you overslept or, or, or somebody else on a team, you know, I, I was always worried about missing the practice. But, you know, like you said, sometimes uh, other guys showed up late and uh, they, they didn't miss quite as much time that I would have missed. Yeah. But, uh, well, you, you, you found out that there there's such a thing as brownie points yeah. and the, uh, the better players had a few more. Yeah, we'll talk about talk about uh, again the adversity, building uh, a res- resilient teams. Uh, how did Coach K do that? How can we do it in the workplace? Because that is something you know. Again, going back to the accountability part, you have your core values, you have your behaviors. Then holding somebody accountable. People show up late to work. People aren't meeting quotas. What What's the secret? What do you think is important? Um, uh, for for the audience to pick up maybe from you and and or coach K. I think any any team I've ever been on and I don't I don't mean team in just a sports context is when I've been working as a lawyer or the team I'm on now uh, the broadcast group I work with uh, it's sort of a collective responsibility and and making sure that we understand and care for the different roles that people have that, you know, when I was playing like Johnny Dawkins was our best player 
And that was a responsibility, honestly, that I couldn't fathom uh, when I was playing with him. You know, it was one of those things. And maybe there was a feeling you had, too. Like, if I didn't play well, we still won. Johnny didn't play well. We did not win. He was a great player. And he had more like he had a responsibility that was of a different level than my responsibility. And I, I, I respected that. And I, I, I appreciated what he did, but at the same time, like he appreciated what I did. And when you have that, when, when players or or colleagues of yours are making sacrifices, you know, you have to honor that. How, How did, how did that show up? How did he show that appreciation? He would, he would praise the things that you did well in a game when he's being interviewed afterwards. Uh, so, you know, they go to the star player for the interview. He made sure to shine a light on the things his teammates did that put it, put us in a position to win. Do you think that was uh, the way he was, or does that something that coach K encouraged? I, I'm sure there was both. part of both. Um, I, I'm, but I think he was like that as a person. He's a great teammate. But it, it, it's just it, not great shaking hands yeah. before games. <laughs> but it was That's a little inside joke that. But it was mean. It, it's really meaningful when your when your teammates, you know, have a have a positive word for you and well, that, are, it, are appreciative. It, it's James Worthy. We're playing an ACC tournament, nineteen eighty two, Triangling Two by Jim Valvano, your favorite coach, Bo. And who do they leave open? Man, Jimmy Black. Okay. So we got to make some shots. James Worthy comes to me in a dead ball situation says, when I get the ball, I'm going to throw it to you and you shoot it. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. That meant more to me than if coach Smith said it to mm-hmm. me, right? Like you said, um, the, 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 the support of a teammate, the, the culture that was driven by players um, and I think that you talk about Leitner holding Grant Hill accountable in your book, Toughness. Um, touch on that a little bit, because Grant wasn't a great outside shooter at, at the beginning. And I think Leitner basically said, you know, you got to take the ball to the basket. And that was more powerful coming from Leitner than it, than it was from a coach. I think so. And I, I think Christian had a very uh, keen understanding that Grant was the difference between, uh, you know, final four caliber team and a championship team. Um, you know, Duke didn't win one until he got there. Uh, it was 1991 and Grant was a freshman. And I, I happen to think Christian Leitner is, is one of the best players, if not the best players ever played there. I happen to think Grant Hill's the best player ever played Duke. Uh, you, it's amazing how good he was. And, but he didn't see himself that way. He's a very humble, you know, kind of person and he wanted to fit in. And Christian is like, no, like take over and wanted him to be more aggressive. Like we need you to do this. And, you know, coach K was that way too. He would every, you know, every once in a while happen on different teams. He would ask the team, he said, are you guys okay with Grant shooting? And they would all go, yeah. And he said, then shoot it. He never did that with me, oddly enough. (laughs) Set a screen. Are you okay with Jay rebounding? (laughs) Yes, we'll rebound. Hey, Jay, if you ever find yourself open with a clear shot, call timeout. (laughs) All right. This will go back to 1982. I mean, I was a good player. I thought I was a good player. And I take an open 15-footer in practice. Coach Smith blows the whistle. Ah, who on Matthew's team thought that was a good shot? Raise your, <laughs> raise your hand. 
and I'm standing next to James Worthy and his nickname Stick. I said, Stick, Stick, like help, help a brother out. <laughs> Nobody raised their hand. <laughs> Brutal manipulation with good intent, although that wasn't, didn't feel like good intent. Right? Well, I got it after a while. You know, you realize that, that these guys should be taking more shots. Yeah. As we get older, we're like, mm, yeah, that was pretty good coaching. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of get it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that you talk about adapt and overcome. You went on a trip to the Middle East as part of Operation Hardwood. And I think we all are blown away by men and women in the in in the armed forces. Uh, anybody in here serve in the military? Please raise your hand. Stand up, stand up, please. Richard, you, you, thank you very much, Raf. Two Tar Heels, by the way. Raf's a Tar Heel. Richard Venroot played for Coach Smith at um, North Carolina and was the mayor of of, of Charlotte. Another attorney. Um, we have a lot of attorneys. Um, anyway, um, thank you for serving. There are two kinds of entrepreneurs, those who run their businesses and those whose businesses run them. If you've lost control of your business, consider running on EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. EOS is used by more than 190,000 companies worldwide to help simplify, clarify, and achieve their vision. My friend and colleague, Brandon Blell, is a professional EOS implementer. She can help. Schedule a meeting with her at eosworldwide.com backslash Brandon Blell. That's B-L-E-L-L or connect with her on LinkedIn. If you are looking for a commercial roofer, you got to call Catamount Roofing first. They are experts in the commercial roofing space serving North and South Carolina. The team at Catamount specialize in commercial, industrial, medical, and institutional roofing. They will care for your roofing investment every step of the way, from design and installation to maintenance throughout its life to ensure maximized watertight service. Solutions through perseverance. Catamount Roofing. They work to make your roof last longer. Get in touch today at catamountroofing.us. That's catamountroofing.us. Adapt and overcome. Talk about that. I went on a trip in, I think it was 05 and 06. I went twice to the Middle East during the, uh, uh, the Iraq war, Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom. And the, uh, I went with a group of coaches and we each had a, a team, a different team from a branch of the military or a camp from uh, Afghanistan or, uh, or Iraq or Kuwait. And we were at Camp Arif John in Kuwait in a very Spartan uh, gym. And these, these military groups had come in from, from all over the Middle East to play in this, this tournament that was set up for them. And, uh, you know, whether it was Gary Williams or uh, Dave Odom was on the trip when he was in South Carolina, you know, Tom Izzo, ton of great coaches, Kelvin Sampson. Uh, we, we each had a team. Uh, and when, when we first got our teams together, we would have uh, practice time. And one of the coaches, I think it was Dave Odom, decided, why don't we, why don't we just sort of take some time with each of our teams and then scrimmage and put our stuff in while we're going five on five. And the scrimmages got really heated and bodies were flying. These soldiers were going after each other. And some of them were high school level players, maybe, maybe, you know, could have played after high school. Some of them were less than that. 
And every time there was a collision, you know, you know, when we were playing that might've on the playground, that might've started a fight. And Dave was the one that pointed out, he goes, look at this. He goes, there are no officials out there. And these guys are fouling each other like crazy and nobody's saying a word like they were, those were some tough dudes, man. And, but in, in our time off, um, we were toured around this gigantic military base and there was a sign that said adapt and overcome. And so some of the, some of the soldiers that were hosting us were explaining to us kind of what that meant, that they had a certain, they had missions that, that they were going to have obstacles and too bad, like adapt to it and overcome it. You know, we have a mission. And one of the most profound moments was we were on a little kind of sprinter bus and they were touring us around something. I think we were going to some tank unit and we drove tanks around. It was, you know, really irresponsible, the military to put Gary Williams in a tank. <laughs> Rick Barnes too. There could have been a talk about an international incident. <laughs> so we, we drove past this, uh, this row of flags, you know, there's an American flag and some different flags. And some of the flags were of different colors and just, you know, like maybe a, a, a red flag or a green flag, something like that. So one of the coaches says, what, what do those flags represent? And, and one of the soldiers says, those, and very matter of fact, he says, those are our heat, heat orders. And it's like 115, 120 degrees there during the summertime. And, and so we asked him to explain. And he said, well, if, if it's a certain color of flag, that might mean uh, 20 minutes on, 40 minutes off. So they're working out in the sun for 20 minutes and they have to take 40 minutes to go in a tent or inside to get out of this, you know, life-changing, life-threatening heat. So what are the different levels of flags? And I, I, if I remember right, there was a black flag that meant you were, you were 10 minutes on, 50 minutes off. And one of the coaches says, well, how do you, you know, how do you get your work done that way? And he says, well, respectfully, I say this, we don't heed that order. And he was like, you don't follow that order? He goes, we got brothers and sisters dying up in Iraq. Wow. We're not taking 50 minutes off. Wow. And you're like... If you, you, those of you in the front row may be able to see Jay, don't mind me sharing, getting emotional about that. I mean, that is powerful stuff. And um, well, it's a level of commitment that I can't relate to. We you think, know, I, I never served. Yeah. I've never made a commitment no. that profound. And you were tough. You were a tough basketball player. You show toughness. You show grit. You wrote a book about toughness. That's a different level. That's a different level. And one of the soldiers had talked about, uh, there's a, a level, the highest uh, non-commissioned officer, I think it was called the Sergeant Major. And the respect that the, the soldiers had for this Sergeant Major was off the charts. I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe it. And we asked somebody about him and, and he talked about the reason they, they respected him so much. Weren't, he had incredibly high expectations, but he really cared about them. Cared. And his thing was, they, they said, there's a big difference between being in charge and being a leader. And the, the, the point that that soldier made was that guy's a leader. We've had a there's lot a of people in charge. That. There's a difference. There's a difference between in charge and being a leader. How about and, that? and that guy's a leader. I remember the soldier saying that. You take one nugget away from this podcast and today's, uh, uh, that's, that's a strong nugget. I've got two questions and then Bo's going to do, uh, we're going to have some questions and answer from the audience here um, at live audience. First of all, besides the book Toughness, 
What's your favorite book? What book had the biggest impact on you that the you can remember? Biggest impact of a book. There were a lot of d- books in the Duke Library, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of them you have to color in. Uh, the the book that, you know, the, the, the best basketball book I've ever read is actually Coach Smith's book. Multi- really? Multiple Offense and Defense. I you, read that in the late 80s and it changed the way I looked at basketball. I didn't really. No kidding. It, that's absolutely true. I didn't really realize um, that Coach Smith was probably ahead of the curve in analytics. Yes, he was. Um, yeah, I'm going to interrupt. Halftime. I know Richard, when you were playing, Jed, when you were playing, but halftime, we'd come in and talk about points per possession. And the next day in a film uh, session, points per possession, we were all like, and I I like math. Like I was pretty good in math, but like points per, come on, like, you know, and explain it, you know, now with the three point shot and offensive rebounds. And then I'm working for the Pacers uh, uh, several years ago and all this analytic. Now that's a stat, like in, like a regularly a produced stat, right? Yeah. That everyone's talking about. And I don't think I had ever read before that or, or heard somebody say that the, you know, the, the perfect possession is to get fouled. Yeah. You know, if you get fouled every possession, you're going to shoot free throws. That's the most efficient place to score on a basketball floor. And I, you know, I, it just opened up a different view of the game. Um, I don't think there's been most of the things that have sort of inspired or motivated me have been from people saying something to me um, that that's been like the the group of mentors I've had, whether they knew they were a mentor or not, was probably the most um, impactful for me. Uh, people who took the time to help you. Like and, who? Like who? Well, my my junior basketball coach, when I, I was playing through fourth through eighth grade, a guy named Dick Spidell, yep. some of the stuff that he would say, like, I don't know how much I really believed in myself yep. until he believed in me. And, you know, Coach K was a huge one. And then uh, when I got to uh, become a lawyer, Moore and Van Allen, there's a, uh, the managing partner of my law firm is a guy named Ben Hawfield, and maybe the smartest um, person I've ever been around. Uh, and, you know, he, he was sort of the one that, that told me and showed me that one, like I had, we had a case together once and we were dealing with with lawyers across from us that I didn't think were the sharpest tools in the shed. And I thought that gave us a big advantage. And he said, no, it doesn't. And he says, you want to go against smart people. They know what a good deal looks like. And he said that, that you that's the most important thing is de- dealing with when you're dealing with smart people that understand what's going that? on, that that's when you have the chance to really accomplish something. And he was really good with. Uh, you know, you tend to think that in a law firm, you know, the end of the year, compensation is a big deal. You know, everybody seems to be fighting for their slice of the pie. And Ben was really good at making sure that people knew how much he valued the contribution and said one time, he says, you know, the, the compensation piece is not as big a deal as you think. And he says, everybody, certainly everybody wants to be valued the right way, but they what they really want to do is feel valued. And Amen, man. He was Amen. really good at that. Amen, right? Uh, that's one of the, probably the Gallup polls, one of the number one reasons why people leave their place of employment. They don't feel appreciated. That's powerful. We and it's not on. hard to, it's not it's hard, not hard, hard to make, it's not hard. You know, it's kind of the catch them doing right something, you know, complicate uh, or compliment people when they're doing something well and their contra- make their contribution feel as valued as it is. Because if you take away that contribution, 
like I, I sat next to a, a you know, this is a, several years ago before I wrote this book, I was traveling down to Orlando to do a basketball clinic and my ticket got screwed up. So I'm sitting in the back of the plane. I'm feeling sorry for myself. Not, not in first class. Not in first class. Wow. I'm slumming it. And you know, you know how when you're sitting there and there's an open seat next to you. Oh yeah. Praying nobody like, takes it. And then you see a guy. Acting like you're sleeping. You see a guy coming down the aisle and you know, <laughs> this big, big dude is sitting next to me. And th- this happens. Guy sits next to me and I'm thinking, you know, okay, I'm going to be. And, and turns out, you know, we start talking. And I'm, I'm usually not a talker on an airplane. To me, an airplane is a flying bus. I want to get off it and get out. And so uh, we start talking. Well, well, duly noted. Yeah. Duly noted. We start talking. And he says, why, you know, why, why are you headed to Orlando? I said, well, I'm actually going down to, to a basketball clinic there. And I said, how about you? And he says, I'm going down to watch the space shuttle take off. And I go, oh, that's great. Like, you know, you had an interest in that for a long time. He goes, well, actually, I'm the, I'm the head of the the space shuttle program at NASA. I'm going. <laughs> and, and you didn't want to talk to him. And you're sitting, yeah. <laughs> and you're sitting in coach. <laughs> I would have thought you guys had some vehicles to get you down there. <laughs> so it turns out he's a big Kentucky basketball fan. He's asking me all these coach K leadership questions. Meanwhile, I want to know about NASA. Right. Right. So I asked you him, wrote like, about this in your book. Yeah. I asked yes, him, his name's Daryl Woods. We, we become friends. And, yeah. and so I asked him like, what's the biggest leadership challenge you have? And it, it was really an amazing conversation to, to listen to. He says, um, he says, it's really, really getting the, the people who, who are in charge of these different elements of the space shuttle, understanding that they're part of a bigger whole, that they tend to get siloed, yeah. that their element of the shuttle is all that matters. So if you're in charge of the guidance system or the rocket booster system or whatever it is, I don't even know all the things I'm talking about here, but you're on a roll. But he says, he says, uh, he would, and I said, well, how do you deal with that? He says, I, I, I go to them and I tell them, um, the, the, your element will not fly by itself, but the shuttle will not fly without your element. You know, you start thinking about that. that. I love that quote. Go ahead. Your element will not fly by itself but the shuttle will not fly without your element, right? Like basically you're part of a bigger hole and you're part of a bigger team. And so he came up with this saying, I was like, how do you get that across? And he came up with the saying, um, responsible for the element, accountable to the mission. Responsible for the element. Responsible to the element, accountable to the mission. Wow. And I started thinking about like, wow, you know, that to me that would, that like kind of translated really well to, to man to man defense. So you know, I can be fooled into thinking that my man is the most important thing. If I stop him from scoring, I did my job. Right. Meanwhile, somebody behind me is laying the thing in. And we, you know, dude, we got scored on. Right. Your guy didn't score, but we got scored on. So what, what were you, were you accountable to making sure that we didn't get scored upon? Or were you just a, a responsible for your thing alone? And it, it was, you know, I really thought about that, that, you know, you, when, when you're on a team or a member of a team, you know, everybody has a selfish, you know, sort of selfish nature in a way. But when when you're you throw yourself into what the team is doing and and you're accountable to what the team is doing, you know, I tend to think your individual performance gets better. Um, but but that made a big impact on me, sort of responsible to the element, accountable to the mission. Powerful nugget. Um, last question before we go to Q&A. I know a lot of people may want to ask this question. College athletics crazy right now. I mean, uh, realignment, transfer portal, NIL money. Um, 
where are we going? What's the future look like? What is the new uh, uh, president of the NCAA? Uh, you know, what, what's, what's he doing to make, to write the ship? I think we're headed to a better place because the, the, the landscape is becoming more honest. You know, we, we have been in a dishonest business for a long time and a hypocritical business, truthfully. I, I've, I've been hesitant to use that term hypocritical over the years because it's, it sounds incendiary and people get upset when they get called hypocrites. But, um, you know, I would, I would use the word contra, there are a lot of contradictions in college athletics. But when, from the, the time we were in school, when the last Supreme Court case came down and schools could basically make as much money as they want, be on television whenever they want, this has been a professional industry, professional sports industry. It's like a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry that, that where all the, the members of the association are individual market competitors. And the only time they act in concert is to collude to limit what athletes can get. That's really the only time they agree to anything. And what's happening now is just the latest in this. So when you and I played in the ACC, I get this question a lot. They said, boy, it must really, it must really uh, frustrate you to see the ACC going through this. So they've been going through it for 30 years. Like when you and I played, uh, there were eight teams in the league. So we played 14 conference games. So you had seven home games, seven road games. And we were both the same in this. Five of our road trips were by bus. Mm-hmm. We, we flew to Maryland and we flew to Georgia Tech and that was it. Mm-hmm. Everything else was by bus. And, you know, that was, that was what people like to think college sports was. Uh, Florida State came into the ACC in, in 1991 or so, 1990. Then, in, then they brought in, they raided the Big East and brought in, uh, uh, you know, Virginia Tech and Miami and all these places they get they take Louisville, Boston, uh, College. Boston College, Syracuse, Pittsburgh, and and now your road trips are Syracuse, Miami, and and now they're talking about bringing in uh, Stanford and Cal, and we're going to say oh this tiny little enterprise of college athletics you know it's all about education it, it's it's certainly about education it's about student athlete welfare but that's not number one and two number one is money. It's money. And that's okay. It's America. I don't have any problem with how much coaches make. I don't ever have any problem with how much athletic director make as much as you can, but the athletes have to be cut in on it. And if, if you don't like it at your school, the doors to division two and division three are wide open. But if you're going to play this, like if you're a player that went to USC two years ago, you're, you're going into your junior year. Maybe you went there because, well, I grew up in L.A. My parents can see me play. They can make a road trip up to Stanford and Cal and get up to Oregon and Washington. They can't go to Rutgers and Penn State and Michigan State and Michigan. And their their, their deal has materially changed. And then they're going to be told, well, you can't transfer unless you sit out a year. Like, really? Um, I think we're headed in a better direction because it's becoming more of an honest proposition. They can't control the money that goes to players, they think they can and they can't. And so now what the NCAA is doing is they're, they're lobbying Congress for a federal law that's going to allow them to limit what athletes can earn. And that goes back to when they did that when I was an assistant coach at Kansas, exactly. the restricted earnings coach. That lasted like a year. That, but that, that was an NCAA. So that's exactly right. You're, you're exactly right. So it's on 
that oh, was this a, is a federal. There's a federal law. So that was an that was what happened then was a federal antitrust violation, and it should have told the, the NCAA that we don't have much longer to do this. The courts are catching up with us. So they lost the most recent antitrust case, uh, the Alston case, and got obliterated. They lost nine to nothing on the Supreme Court level. And Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion basically said, "You're not above the law, NCAA." And they sent the message: "You bring this back to us." We're going to slap you down again. Wow. And so now it's going to be player compensation. The only thing that can save the NCAA is Congress saying, all right, we will give you an antitrust exemption so you can, with our blessing, blessing violate federal antitrust law. I think it's a long shot that it happens, but they're going to have to start signing players to contracts. Uh, they're going to then yeah, the, it needs to be more structured. It'll like be the, structured. the NBA is doing it. It'll be structured. Right. Yeah. But the NBA is collectively bargained. And so when when they have a union and when people say and it's usually to say there should be a limit, you know, the NBA limits salaries. Yeah, they do. But they bargain with the players. The players agree to it. And the NBA players take 50 percent of revenue. Yeah. Like you want to take you want to give college athletes 50 percent of the revenue. They don't want to yeah. do that. No. Right now, college athletes would be cheap if they just signed them to, to, to contracts. Yeah. And they'll, labor. Do it. they'll do it eventually. Wow. Uh, let's give uh, Jay a round of applause. Thank you very much. Really good stuff, Jay. I could go on and on. Uh, Bo, why don't you field a couple of questions uh, from, from the audience? If uh, somebody wants to raise their hand and ask a question, Bobby Carver, you got a question or you're just running out? All right. Played for Frank McGuire at uh, South Carolina. Uh, grew up in East Meadow, New York, my hometown as well. Bobby, appreciate you being here. Adam, go ahead. Give you. I just wanted to know, did you coordinate the shoes? And if not, how did it occur? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> I spoke at Jay's camp um, at Davidson College a couple months ago, and Jay was sporting the Pumas, and I'm like, man, those are pretty slick. And um, I grew up in New York with the New York Knicks, and they had Walt Frazier, who really was probably the first player to wear Puma basketball shoes. And I'm like, man, those are pretty cool. And so, you know, it's kind of okay to wear sneakers, nice sneakers with, uh, with you know, a sport coat and I'm like, uh, all right, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on what Jay's doing and uh, yeah, pretty nice, right? Well, Matt and I actually have a shoe history. Oh, we we do have a shoe history. So when we were playing in in college, we've been friends for God, it's coming up on forty years. So we would go, the Duke guys would go to Chapel Hill one week and we play pickup at Chapel Hill. Maybe they'd come another week and play in Durham. And our uh, our shoe contract was Adidas and uh, North Carolina's was Converse. And so, you know, we loved our shoes, the Adidas shoes we had, but you know, you're that age, you want something different from time to time. So we used to trade shoes with the Carolina guys. So Matt and I, uh, Matt and I do a shoe deal and I give them this, I give them this brand new pair of Adidas pro models, you know, they were sweet. They were sweet. Had the, you know, the leather toe and everything. Yeah. And Matt gives me a pair of uh, Converse from uh, from Carolina. And so after I got back, you know, I, I'm a trusting guy. So I didn't look in the box. And uh, and I get I get back, I get back to Durham and I went to go put them on in the locker room. All my teammates are there. I open them up and I go, damn, he wore these things. <laughs> that added the value brand. to them, right? <laughs> I mean, national championship worn shoe. <laughs> 
I mean, I should have signed them. Those things would be worth like 10 bucks. My teammates were killing me going, you got rocked in a deal with Matt Doherty. <laughs> he rocked you. That was a smart attorney. It's a smart deal. Oh, gosh, that's funny. Any other questions? Yeah, Nico, go ahead. You can shout out the question. Yeah, I'm going to repeat the question. Nico uh, in the audience asked a question about the Duke uh, game against UNLV in the Final Four, 91, Final Four. You were on... I was on, a second-year uh, assistant coach. Okay, all right. And the year before, 1990, UNLV had beaten us in the championship game by 30. And it, it's still the biggest margin in a, in a in a championship game. I mean, it was you know still in therapy sessions over it. And the next year, UNLV is undefeated. You know, they had Larry Johnson, Stacy Augman, uh, you know Anderson Hunt, and I mean, it was ridiculous how how talented they were. And they were expected to just roll to another national championship. And then we're playing them in the in the the semifinals, and. So the the assistant coaches at that time at Duke, I was the grad assistant. Mike Bray was on the staff, Tommy Amaker and Pete Gaudet. And the assistants thought there's no reason for us to haul out the tape from last year and, and watch them beat us like they were clubbing baby seals. Like that can't be good. That can't be good for the players. And Coach K was like, no, no, no. We're showing them that tape. And his point was, we're going to show them the areas that we can clean up. And if we if we handle these situations better we're going to be in the game at the end. And, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't have any illusions that we were somehow going to blow out UNLV, but we'll be in the game at the end. They don't play in close games very much. We do like, that's where we live. And if we're in a close game at the end, we'll, we'll win. We'll have a chance to win. And so he kind of sold that to the, to the players. And that was a great lesson for me that he wasn't showing them the tape to watch us get beat. He was showing the tape to say, look, these are things we can correct. These are issues that led to us losing. If we do this, this, and this, we'll be in the game at the end. And that's where we live. They're not comfortable in those situations. We are. And it was a really sort of positive, here's how we're going to win scenario. And uh, he was very good at that and still is very good at that. And everything he said kind of came true. And he also said something. So after the game, uh, you know, Christian Leitner had hit some really big free throws down the stretch. And after the game, as a staff, we were watching the tape and and Leitner's making the free throws on the on the film. And Coach K stops it. And we were the assistants kind of sitting behind him. He sat in a chair in the front and he 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 turned around and he said, he said, Leitner, he may miss, but he will never choke. And, and I, I remember, I remember listening to that going, damn, you know, that's true. Like he was unafraid of missing, like he may miss, but he's not afraid to miss. Like he's not going to choke up there. And, wow. and it was true. Like wow. he was an extraordinary player. Any, anybody else with a question? Brian. Yeah. So did your dad play basketball? And if so, how did he stay out of critiquing you growing up playing? My dad, that's a great question. My dad did not play. My dad had to work. Um, he's of Yugoslav descent. And so his parents came over from Yugoslavia, uh, from a little fishing town on the Adriatic. And my dad was born here in the United States in San Pedro, California, but he didn't speak English until he went to school. And so he very sort of working, um, working class family. My grandmother worked in the Starkist cannery for like 40 plus years. And 
my grandfather was a fishing boat captain. And so my dad went to work for my grandfather and he was a commercial fisherman from the time he was probably 13 years old until his early twenties when he went to technical school and learned how to deal with electronics and, and all that stuff. Um, so he did not play, but I don't think that's why he stayed out of it. I think he, he felt like he was one of those guys that said, look, I get to tell you what to do at home. I'm not going to tell you what to do in your free time. And, uh, and, you know, we were probably, you'd probably call us free range kids. Like we, we were, we were let out of the house and then just be back by dinner time. And, uh, and now, you know, you don't let your kids out of your sight. And, and so, uh, I, I, that, I had some freedom as a kid, which I really appreciated. And I, and I appreciated my dad kind of staying off my back on stuff that was my thing. And, uh, and he enjoyed, he really enjoyed, uh, the sports experience. Like he enjoyed my teammates. He loved listening to stories. Like he couldn't wait to hear like, what, what did that guy say? Or what, what, when you, when you guys were, were in the huddle, what happened? I uh, loved all the locker room stuff. He had a really good time with that. One more question. Yes. Great. Great. Uh, question, uh, for the listening audience, every year there's a new freshman class that comes in. What did Coach K, Coach Smith do to bring those guys along and help integrate them into the team? That's a really great question. Um, when, when I first got to Duke, uh, the, the older players had not experienced a lot of success. And some of them were recruited by the prior coach, Bill Foster. And so there was a lot of kind of butting heads uh, between the staff and some of the players that were already there. Um, so we, we probably didn't get the, the all of our teammates were great to us, but there wasn't an established culture of leadership among the players. And so I think we um, the group I was with, Johnny Dawkins, Mark Allery, uh, David Henderson, uh, and then late, the next year, Tommy Amaker came in. We felt the responsibility that the next guys that, that came in, the guys behind us, hey, they, they may be good, better than us. I mean, they may take our jobs, but we got we got to help them and we got to show them like this is this is what you do and this is how you handle yourself. And when Coach K goes off on one of them, don't you know, you're good. Don't worry about it. We got your back. You're good. Just trying to like the responsibility of of making them feel like, you know, there are, they don't have to integrate themselves in the team. You're already on the team. Like we're with you and we're supporting you. And especially the guys that were freshmen, you know, we had a senior dominated team my senior year that weren't playing. A couple of them didn't play much and letting them know, man, you're really good. Like as soon as, as soon as we clear out of here, this is going to be yours and you'll kill it. And just wanted to make them make sure we took them with us when we went somewhere, when we went out, when we were on the road, come with us, like sit here, you know, like making sure that they felt like they were just as big a part of it as we were just because we were there longer didn't make us more important. But we had a we had a responsibility to make sure that that we did what we could to bring them in and up the right way from our perspective. Like Coach K was the head coach, but we were still hopefully impactful. And then they would do the same, you know, you do for someone else. They can't pay you back for that. They pay it forward by doing it for somebody else. And that's how you build a, a really good culture. Well, li listen, Bo, uh, Bo, I think it's time for, uh, can I ask one question to you real quick? Yeah. W would you like to know the, the nugget that I will 
take away from here and apply to my daily business life? What's that? So you said, what, what's the nugget? So I'm, I'm listening to you talk and the, the radio station where the, the Rebound podcast originates, WBT, 101 years old this past April. So I have a guest on my show in the morning, one of which is H.A. Thompson. Some of you may know who H.A. Thompson is. H.A. Thompson is a couple of months off of 90 years old. H.A. Thompson's a big time guest. When he comes on the show, I always know what I'm going to say when H.A. comes on. It's very simple. H.A. Thompson, among other things, at one point in time in the 1970s, had the number one most listened to radio show in America in the 70s for mid mornings on WBT. That's not just Charlotte. That's all across the country. You're wondering, where's this going? Next time you're on my show, very, very simple introduction. Matt Doherty, at one point in time in the 1980s, the greatest screener in America. <laughs> wow. Really? Wow. Yeah, I was, actually. Yeah, and I'll wear that. I'll wear <laughs> that. I'll own that. Leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you're a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me at DartyCoaching.com. This is Brian Anders, native Charlatan, recovering engineer, and seasoned entrepreneur. I am proud to support Matt Doherty and his podcast because even though he's not famous for his vertical leap, he truly knows how to rebound. We all know it takes community to get back on your feet and pursue that next opportunity. I invite you to connect with me on LinkedIn at Brian K. Anders. That's Brian with an I, K. Anders, A-N-D-E-R-S. And I will see you online. At Action Plus Ideas, your brand is our purpose. Elevating brands through premium merchandise and apparel is our expertise. With a legacy spanning over 30 years in Charlotte, we take pride in serving our community and beyond. With exceptional service, top-tier products, and always-on-time delivery, we create lasting client relationships. As a prominent promotional products distributor, we offer competitive pricing, superior decoration, and inventive marketing solutions to make your brand stand out from the crowd. Contact Action Plus Ideas for more information at actionplusideas.com.